Welcome back to the Godcast, episode 11, season 2, where we'll talk about Hinduism. My name is Rylan. My name is Xavier. And I'm Balin. All right, uh, with that being said, uh, Rylan, uh, I know that you've been doing the bulk of the research for this episode, to, to, to put it lightly, so uh, jump in. All right. So Hinduism is definitely one of the oldest religions. Uh, it's unique in many ways. It has no central leader. Most, well, not most, but a, a lot of religions have a central leader, and Hinduism doesn't. Um, there are quite a few different Hindu texts that are, that date back to the, uh, hundreds of years BC. So it's, it's been around for a long time. Basically the goal of Hinduism, like many religions is liberation or, uh, the freeing oneself. And the Hindu term for this is moksha, which literally means, uh, liberation. Hinduism has millions of gods, which is another thing that makes it unique. Um, and this is sort of contrasted with the Hindu concept of Brahman. Uh, Brahman is a term that refers to everything. Everything is Brahman, and including the gods. So in, in, in one sense, Hinduism is a very polytheistic religion with millions of gods. But in another sense, everything is Brahman, which is sort of a, um, what is called monism. Or a monotheistic belief, I guess you could say. So two conferences really quickly. Uh, one of which would be, um, you said that, that Hinduism is, is very ancient, obviously. Um, who does Hinduism go back to, or is it a, is the, is the collection of sages? Is there someone in, in Hindu tradition who is supposed to have written the first Hindu texts? And if so, what are those texts? And then secondly, um, let's explore monism a bit, because I think that's oh, yeah. a very interesting concept. So... Yeah. So, uh, the oldest, most comprehensive Hindu text is called the Rig Veda, which is a collection of around a thousand Sanskrit hymns that were composed um, around 1500 BCE or earlier. And there is no uh, single person that created this collection of texts. There's no single um, person that can be attri- that can attribute all of this. So. It's really impossible to to um, say that a single person created Hinduism or created these texts. It's really a, a collection of a lot of people a really long time ago. In Hindu tradition, is there a certain person who's supposed to have written these texts? And then secondly, uh, how do the Upanishads uh, fit into this? Because I know that those are a, a, oh, yeah. a central text in Hinduism. Um, to my knowledge, from what I've studied... There, there is no single person that it, that created the religion or that created these texts. Um, but another thing to mention is the um, Bhagavad Gita, which is another Hindu text, um, and that is important in describing a lot of Hindu concepts such as Dharma and Karma, and it's a collection of stories surrounding um, Krishna, who is an incarnation of Vishnu. And his interactions with Arjuna, who was a warrior. And uh, who wrote the uh, Upanishads, and uh, why are they important? The Upanishads, which were one of the main Hindu texts, were written around uh, 1500 BCE to 500 BCE, which marked the end of the Vedic period and later gave birth to Buddhism. Yes, it's very important to note, uh, this is actually one of our earliest episodes in which we ever interviewed someone. Um, we were interviewing Reverend Koyama, who is a Zen Buddhist, and he talked about how the common misconception is that Hinduism is the religion out of which Buddhism springs, but in reality it's actually Vedism, which is an older uh, religion out of which Hinduism springs and out of which Buddhism comes 
Uh, in fact, uh, arguably beforehand, before uh, Hinduism emerges from Vedism. Furthermore, the Upanishads are considered to be philosophical dialogues. So these, these would be less, it, these would be less um, hymn-oriented and less um, ritual-oriented, per se, but they would be much more focused on uh, Hindu philosophy, or in this case, actually Vedic philosophy, which would, which would then be incorporated into the emerging Hindu movement. So just one last thing I wanted to ask you was monism. How does the concept of monism work? Because the way that I understand it is that all of reality is one substance. I think that's the easiest way to describe monism. We see this in the writings of Baruch Spinoza, um, for example. He would be considered a monist. Um, but how is it that these literally millions of deities all make up one substance? Well, the best way to refer to that substance is Brahman. Um, Brahman is really just an essence, and all matter, uh, all things, all gods, everything, uh, the, the soul, the body, everything is made of Brahman. And specifically, the soul can be referred to as Atman, uh, A-T-M-A-N, but Atman also means Brahman. It's just the term describing the, the human soul. So I guess you could say that everything, matter, things that aren't made of matter, like gods, everything is Brahman. And the best way to describe Brahman is sort of a divine essence. So there's other things that make Hinduism unique. Hinduism uh, pr proposes a cycle of creation, uh, also referred to as samsara. or Well, sam samsara refers to reincarnation or the wheel of rebirth. And it says that people, when they die, become reincarnated, and the quality of their next life depends upon their karma and their previous life. So if they were a good person, if they did good deeds, then they would end up in a higher caste system, which I'll get into later. And if they were a bad person, or if they were a really bad person, they may reincarnate as a dog or like a cat or something like that. Um, but if they lived a life and they maybe did more bad things than good things, they may go down a caste level. And the goal is to reach moksha or liberation. And the only way to do that is to have good karma and to do good things. And the cycle of reincarnation, it can happen hundreds, thousands of times. And there's no way to really know when you're close. Uh, the only thing you can do is to do good deeds and make sure your karma is is good. Um, another thing that makes Hinduism unique is that it believes in a in a karma. It believes in karma and dharma. Karma I already kind of explained, but karma is sort of the moral law of cause and effect, and it determines one's um, reincarnation, their next life, the quality of their next life. And dharma refers to a person's ethical duty, and that is based on your caste level. So if you're in a higher caste level, you may have. Uh, different dharma or different duties that say that that determine what you should do compared to someone of a lower caste so in essence the idea is that one is, this is the sort of difference from other world religions obviously in 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 uh, protestant christianity one is saved by one's faith in uh um uh, in zoroastrianism one is saved by one's good works outweighing one's evil works is this the same for hinduism that one's evil works must be outweighed by one's good yes. works in order to progress? Yes, but it cannot happen in one lifetime. It, it will happen over hundreds or thousands of lifetimes. And your karma, you just, 
the goal is to make sure that you're constantly doing good deeds in all of your lives and eventually you will achieve moksha or liberation. You spoke about how long this process takes. My understanding is that in the Dharmic faiths, which would be um, Buddhism and um, to some degree uh, Sikhism, although this may, this may not apply in this case because of its, of its influence, uh, because of the fact that it was influenced by, by um, Su- Persian Sufism, so it might be different in this, in this case, but um, Jainism, Buddhism, and Hinduism all teach an eternal, uh, and also doubt. Uh, no, I not Taoism, but these all teach an eternal universe. Am I correct? Yes, that's right. And uh, I also forgot to mention that the universe goes through cycles. So there are three main gods that are associated with the cycle of the universe. Um, they are Brahma, who's the god of creation, Vishnu, the god of preservation, and Shiva, the god of destruction. And every billion or more so years, the universe will be destroyed by Shiva and will be recreated by Brahma and preserved by Vishnu. So one important aspect of Hinduism is the caste system, which has remained a very important aspect of Hinduism for as long as it's been around. The caste system is split into four main categories. They are Brahmin, which is the highest caste consisting of mostly priests. There's Kshatriya, which is the second highest consisting of warriors and administrators. There's the Vaishya, which has farmers, merchants, and artisans. And then there's the Shudra, which is con- which consists of servants and laborers. And then if you imagine those four as a pyramid, um, under that pyramid would be the untouchables, which are considered the lowest cat. They're not even considered a caste. They're just like the, the outcasts of society. Um, and your dharma or your ethical duty like I mentioned before, will depend on what caste that you're born into. And generally, it is very frowned upon to marry into a different caste, uh, especially if you're marrying into a lower caste. Um, A lot of Hindus will find that their families will disown them if they try to marry into a lower caste. Um, And your, your dharma or your ethical duty also depends on what stage of life you're in. And Hinduism has four, also four main stages of life. So first, you start out as a student. And the goal or the dharma of a student is to study the, the Vedic texts and um, the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. Um, and then later on in that stage, normally the, your parents will arrange a marriage. Um, and then you will enter into the householder stage, which is the second stage of life. Um, in this stage, you will pursue a career, raise a family, um, have children. And then later on, once your first grandchild has been born, you will become a forest dweller. And a lot of people in this stage sort of change the course of their life. And they'll, they'll um, enter into a forest and take up a life of abstinence and... That will last for a while until they enter the last stage, the last stage, which is known as sannyasin, and this is sort of described as a detachment from no- from normal life, where the person no longer gives in to pleasures or um, no longer really is is um, oppressed by pain or by things like they're sort of they've sort of mastered meditation and they've mastered how to live their life by the final stage. And then Hinduism also has four goals of life. So we have the, the four, four main castes, 
the four stages of life and the four goals. So the full the four goals are first one is sensual pleasure or like sexual pleasure and the term that Hindus use for that is kama. And then we have material success which is known as artha. Then we have harmony with dharma and and then we have the bliss of moksha. So if you follow each of these goals, the end is to achieve liberation or moksha. I'd actually like to uh, talk or speak on the event between the Shura and Ashura, the two groups of, uh, well, you might call them maybe deities or demigods, is somewhere in that range, caused by a conflict between who would get the Amrita or nectar of immortality. Which religion is this from? Hinduism. So, okay, so you're not comparing, obviously you're not comparing Hinduism to Hinduism. You're simply mentioning a story within Hinduism. Correct. And then I'm comparing it to other stories which take on a similar, uh, I suppose, event. Which, for example, you have the Titanomachy, the war between the Titans and the Olympians, or the war between the Aesir and Vanir gods of Norse mythology, all of which were caused by disputes over <clears throat> essentially either who had, who would have more power. The Ashra and Shura, they, the Ashra were not treated as something like demons or evil. They had just as many good and evil gods amongst them. Same with the Shura. And or rather Deva, uh, depending on who you would ask about it. And, well, it was actually initially the Deva, the Vedic gods, who took the Amrita for themselves from the Ashura, who they promised would get an equal share, causing the war itself. Nowadays, the Ashura are known for being in modern terms, god killers. As well, the we see this sort of war in heaven in the aforementioned mythologies. So Hinduism also has three different paths to liberation, and there's there's more than just these three, but these are the main three. And liberation meaning freedom from the cycle of samsara or reincarnation. So the first path to liberation is... Uh, for for the active, and it's called the path of works, also known as karma marga. Karma marga emphasizes performing right actions in accordance with one's dharma, meaning one must do what is right and be a person for others. In this path, social interaction is key, along with a life dedicated to serving others. So this would be, this kind of path of liberation would be best for someone who maybe is a doctor or who doesn't have time to 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 um, take on a, a different path and who doesn't have as much time to practice Hinduism. So it's it's better for people that that are are that are already very involved in their careers and don't have much time outside of them. The next path is called the path of knowledge or also known as Janana Marga which emphasizes discovering reality via learning and meditation. In this path, the person 
has a lot of time on their hands and they also tend to be uh, curious. So they are curious rather than ignorant and their goal is to um, discover themselves and the true nature of the universe through meditation. And then the last one is the path of devotion, also known as bhakti uh, or bhakti marga. So bhakti marga is the most popular method of um, of liberation, and it emphasizes love and devotion. And the goal of this path is to focus on devotion towards a single deity. Most commonly, it's Vishnu, the god of preservation. Though there are um, some Hindus, or a lot of Hindus that worship. Uh, Shiva, the god of destruction. Those are the two mo- most common for this path, but there are obviously millions of gods, so there are many other gods that people um, devote themselves to. Those are some of the more common gods uh, to which people are devoted. Well, the, so the most common would be the main three, Brahma, uh, Vishnu, and Shiva. Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer. There is also Durga, who is a goddess and is often worshipped um, to celebrate divine feminism, and there's even a, there's even a Hindu holiday for the celebration of Durga. Uh, it's celebrated during nine. It's a nine nights celebration. Um, those I would say are the most common. There's also the uh, shock. There's a sect of Hinduism called Shaktiism, and instead of believing in Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, they believe in a different trio that are all um, goddesses. So rather than being gods, they're goddesses, and it's another way of celebrating divine feminism. But Shaktiism is very uncommon compared to other sects of Hinduism. Um, only, I would say, it's about less than less than four percent would be would consider themselves as as um, following Shaktiism. Um, what are some major uh, sects of uh, Hinduism? Hinduism can be split into four main branches. Um, I mentioned this earlier, but the most common is Vaishnavism or devotion to Vishnu. Second, and that's about 70%. Second most common is Shaivism or devotion to Shiva. That's about 26%. And then the next most common is uh, Shaktiism, like I mentioned earlier. And then there's also Smartism. Um, which focuses on a different set of Hindu texts that are based on memory rather than divine revelation. And um, doing the math, only 4, 4% of Hindus do not identify with Vaishnavites or Shaivites. So only so most, the vast majority of Hindus either are devoted to Vishnu or Shiva. Interesting. Any other uh, information? So another aspect of Hinduism that's important is cow veneration. And in Hinduism, it is in most, the, in the majority of Hindu state or of Indian states, it is illegal to harm or kill a cow. And um, it is only in, in a select few that it is legal. And the people that work with dead cows are seen as untouchables in society. It's a very unholy thing to find a dead cow, to see a dead cow, to touch a dead cow. It is a very unholy thing, and it, it's, it's taken very seriously. And the reason for this is that cows are seen as a symbol for life, and they're seen as sort of, they can be seen as an omen if you come across a dead cow. It can be an omen, or like a bad omen. Um, 
but that is sort of the reason why they're um, celebrated. Oh, I want to talk about the most important symbol in, his, in Hinduism is the Om. Yes. O-M. It's, it almost looks like an Arabic word or, an, or Arabic writing, but there's a lot of different interpretations for what it could mean. And many Hin- Hindus have different interpretations. Some say that it represents the trio or Brahma, uh, Vishnu, and Shiva. Other people say it represents the unconscious, the conscious, the transcendental, and the dreaming state. And there, so there obviously are many different interpretations for it. Another important Hindu symbol is the swastika, which is probably well known because of Nazi Germany. But in Hinduism, the swastika is oriented. Um, it's well in 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 um, the Nazis in Nazism, the symbol was turned to be sort of um, to be in the shape of like a a diamond, but in in Hinduism, the swastika is is in like in a square shape oriented. But the swastika represents peace, and it's often used with lotus flowers, and it's used in meditation and things like that. All right. Well, um, thank you so much for that very um, thorough presentation. Uh, Bailey, do you have anything else? Do you have any comments on this? All right. So with that being said, uh, do you have anything else to say? Awesome. This has been the Godcast. I'm Xavier. I'm Ryland. And I am Bailey. Stay tuned.